As we come to the end of our focus on Ephesians 1, 11-14, this is our 13th session, and I wanted to bring it all to a climax with the way Paul brings it all to a climax three times. Here in verse 6, he concludes the purpose of election and the purpose of predestination and adoption, all of it rooted ultimately in the good pleasure of his will by saying it is all to the praise of the glory of his grace. When you get down to verse, verses 11 to 14, you realize that we have not only been redeemed in verse 7, but we have obtained an inheritance. Behind that, again, is predestination and the purpose of God who works all things together according to the counsel of his will, again, so that we who first hoped in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then one more time, when it's all said and done, and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as a down payment that guarantees our inheritance, he says, it is all to the praise of his glory. So three times, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And don't miss the obvious. God is pursuing the glory of God. This is not us. He's telling us to respond to this that way, but he's choosing, he's predestining, and the purpose of the choosing and the predestining and every other saving blessing in the heavenly places is that we might praise his glory. So he is after glory. He is after the reflection of his glory in the praises of his people. And this is not unique to Ephesians 1. A few summary statements. God created the world for his glory. Psalm 19, Isaiah 43. God sent his son as the incarnation of God so that we would say, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. God appointed his son to die as a propitiation for our sins to the glory of God. For this purpose, Jesus says, I have come into the world. I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's why you sent me, Father, to get glory for your name. God sanctifies us through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Philippians 1. God sends Christ back at the end of time to earth a second time as the consummation of all things to be glorified in his saints and many, many more such statements. Now, here's an amazing thing. If you go back here to Ephesians 1, not once in all of verses 3 through 14 does God describe the work of God as glorious or beautiful. He doesn't. 
He describes it as what it is. He chose before the foundation of the world. He predestined for adoption as sons. The choosing is that we might be holy. The predestining is that we might be adopted. All of it according to the purpose of his will. And he expects us to see glory. Otherwise, this statement makes no sense. It is all to the praise of the glory of grace. But you haven't told us it's glorious, Lord. He expects us to see glory. That is massively significant. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The reason people cannot see these verses in chapter 1 as glorious is because they are blind to glory. And here's how it gets fixed in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts. This is how it happens. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We see the glory of God when God shines in our hearts and we see it in the gospel. We see it in the knowledge of God. And that's what Ephesians 1 is. We are never told in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, that God is glorious. We are simply shown God. And we are expected to see glory and praise glory. That's why in Ephesians 1, 17 to 18, which is where we're going to go in just a few sessions, Paul is praying. What is he praying? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, experientially know, what is the hope to which he's called you and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Because if God doesn't open the eyes of our hearts, we will not see glory in this inheritance. It will be a boring inheritance. It will be insignificant. Money will be important. House will be important. Family will be important. Business will be important. Everything else on earth will be more important than the glory of our inheritance unless this miracle happens. The eyes of your heart is open. That's why prayer follows theology. So theology in one, three through 14, followed by the pleading of Paul for you and me in one seventeen to 18, that God would give us eyes so that we see glory because we're expected to see glory. So the ultimate purpose of all things is to the praise of the glory, in particular, of his grace. But it's the glory of God, which I define as the, the beauty of God's many perfections. The beauty of God's many perfections. Now, one last question. I learned once from C.S. Lewis, and I commend it to you. The answer to the question, if God is seeking his own glory, why isn't he a megalomaniac and how is it love? How 
is Ephesians 1, 6, 12, and 14, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, God doing everything for the praise of his glory. We don't like people like that. So how is it glorious for God to seek his own glory in all the gifts of Ephesians 1? How is it loving? How is it beautiful? And here's Lewis's answer. I had never noticed, this is from his book, Reflections on the Psalms, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. Unless sometimes even if shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it, the world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes, he's laughing now, politicians and scholars, that's him. <laughs> yes, I had not noticed how the humblest, yes, and the and at the same time, the most balanced and capacious, that means big-hearted, balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks and the misfits and the malcontents praised least. Keep going. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge others to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, indeed what we can't help but doing about everything else that we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Oh my. My mind and my world blew up when I read that almost 50 years ago. It is its appointed consummation. Praise is joy's appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. You see what this implies. God's pursuit of our praise of his glory is love. It's not megalomania. It's not selfishness. God is the one being in the universe who must uphold himself for praise if he would be loving because the one thing that will bring us the greatest delight, indeed bring it to completion, is God and his glory. 
If he were not to pursue the praise of his glory, he would not be loving us because we were made to find our fullest joy in seeing and savoring and speaking the praise of the glory of God. Oh, I hope you see, see the glory of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 and the God behind it all.